Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week we take you on a trip back in time 50 years and we report on all the hockey news from that time period. This week, we'd like to wish everyone a very happy new year and welcoming you to the year 1971 as we look at the week of December 28th to January 4th. Our podcast is made possible by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, a tremendously interesting website to explore. Uh, Their support has been crucial for us in enabling us to uh, look at all the news items from back 50 years ago and bring you all the content that we have. Our other sponsor is the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Colborne, Ontario, just steps from the Welland Canal and Lake Erie. The folks at the Breakwall make the finest craft beers in southern Ontario, and they have some of the best pub food on the planet. Right now, they're only open for takeout and delivery, but when things get back to normal, I'd love to meet any of our listeners at the Breakwall for a burger and a fine craft beer. We'd also like to remind you about our Patreon account. Uh, we hope our subscribers are enjoying the special content that you get from the Patreon uh, membership that uh, we make available. Uh, what that membership includes is early access to each week's uh, free episodes like this one we're producing right now. It also allows access to all the special content we're putting out where we delve more deeply into the subjects and the uh, issues that were taking place 50 years ago. Your donations help us pay the bills and uh, help us make the whole pr- pr- production as enjoyable as we can. You can go to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to donate and we thank you for your support. Last week we had a, a pretty interesting week again. Now both Sid Abel and Ned Harkness called this year's edition of the Detroit Red Wings the worst Red Wings team ever and that's quite a statement for a team with a storied history like Detroit. That caused us to wonder are these two seemingly polar opposites? Were they finally on the same page? We got news last week of the proposed Western Hockey League franchise in Calgary and it wasn't good news for the Vancouver Canucks who had hoped to have their main farm team in the Alberta city. The Calgary Arena Board flatly rejected a proposal to establish professional hockey in in Calgary. Uh, They were bending to the will of the Calgary Junior A team who felt they would be injured by having professional hockey in the city. And we finally got a decision on the sale of the Pittsburgh Penguins to the entertainment conglomerate Metro Media. Well, we got a decision that there would be no sale. The uh, uh, Metro Media folks advised the NHL that they did not want to get involved in the professional sports field at this time. So it was back to the drawing board for the NHL and the Penguins. This week, some of the stories we'll be covering. Well, we have hopeful news on Buffalo Sabres goalie Roger Crozier, who was rushed to hospital last week with a severe attack of pancreatitis. Uh, Gary Unger of the Detroit Red Wings uh, gave a wide-ranging interview uh, to uh, Jack Barry of the Detroit Free Press and the reaction from Detroit team management was not at all positive and this week seemed to be trade rumor week in the NHL and we have a big report on all the rumors that were floating around the league 
at this time. So let's get to a few game reports from the week. Uh, a lot of interesting hockey taking and some surprising results. Uh, the first game we're going to look at uh, was a uh, win a win for the Boston Bruins in Minnesota on Wednesday night against the North Stars. What was interesting about this game is that the North Stars jumped out to a 2-0 lead before the Bruins suddenly realized they were actually in a National Hockey League contest and they stormed back with six straight goals. John Aaron of the Boston Globe provides us with the basis for this report. Phil Esposito scored two goals, Bobby Orr had a goal and three assists, and goalie Jerry Cheevers, after an early bombardment, came back to shut down the Minnesota North Stars in Bloomington. It all added up to a 6-2 victory for the Bruins, who moved into sole possession of first place in the Eastern Division, one ahead of the New York Rangers, who were idle on the, on the evening. The winning goal was scored by hustling Johnny McKenzie just off the injury list in the second period. The Norsers had jumped to a 2-0 lead, but the Bruins pecked away on a power play job by Esposito and Ed Westfall's tipping of an ore blast to tie the score. Then Johnny Busick, who later completed his 10th 20-goal campaign, pushed a perfect pass to McKenzie, who was breaking down the right side as Pi often does. He slipped the puck to the far side past Stars goalie Cesar Maniego, and the Bruins never looked back. Boston wrapped it up in the final period or blasted a power play drive under Maniego's outstretched arm. Busick ticked home his uh, 20th goal of the season after an or shot eluded Maniego, or rather the uh, rebound did. And Esposito sent the Mets center sports fans home quite unhappy when he connected for his second of the night, 34th of the season after a Don Marcotte feed. Marcotte, the rookie, playing very well for the Bruins at this point in the season. Cheevers, after the early Minnesota Blitz, was uh, uh, immense the rest of the way. He held the fort in the third period while the Bruins were adding to their lead. His best stops came with the Bruins nursing a two-goal lead as Jerry robbed Danny Grant, who broke in alone in front of the net. Cheevers wound up with 31 saves and he drew the praise of Bruins coach Tom Johnson as the team prepared to move on to Buffalo for a Friday night game. Johnson said that Jerry kept us in the game. He made the big stops until we finally got on track. Johnson went on to say that otherwise the Bruins could have been blown out of the rink quite early in this one. Bruins big right winger Ken Hodge left the game in the second period after being stricken with a 24-hour flu bug, as they called it back in those days. Wayne Cashman moved over to right wing, and Don Marcotte took up the left side on the line with Phil Esposito. Johnson said that Marcotte really stepped in, stepped up to pick up that line after Hodge left. The Norskars opened the scoring at 2.34 of the second period when Danny O'Shea took a pass in front achievers who was beaten by a low shot to his left. Minnesota added another in a power play just a few seconds later uh, as the largest crowd this season actually ever to see hockey in the Met Center went completely wild. That crowd 15,000 339 hockey is definitely catching on in Minnesota. The score on that second goal, by the way, was old friend Murray Oliver, former Bruin, former Maple Leaf, who was camped out in front of the Boston goal, and he beat Cheevers once again 
to the goalkeeper's left side. After that, it was pretty much downhill for Minnesota. The few good chances that they did get in the Boston zone were stymied by Cheevers, who had one of his more solid performances so far this season. And the Bruins' 6-2 win was pretty indicative of how the play went after they were down 2-0. Also on Wednesday night, the St. Louis Blues took out the Philadelphia Flyers by a score of 5-2 to two in a game in which the Flyers not only squandered two points, but also saw goalie Doug Favell lead the game with an injury as well. Wally Cross of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and Bruce Caden of the Philadelphia Inquirer provide us with the details for this game report. Hal Arbor subscribes to the theory that a change is as good as a rest, so it wasn't surprising to see the quiet spoken coach of the Blues borrow one of Scotty Bowman's favorite moves at the arena last night in an effort to inject more life into his team. The score was tied 1-1. The Blues were struggling to put together some semblance of a passing attack and the capacity crowd of 18,407 was getting restless midway through the second period when Arbor sent out Jim Roberts' jack-of-all-trades to replace Timmy Ecclestone on the line with Red Berenson and Billy Sutherland. Suddenly, everything fell into place. With Roberts supplying the spark and a body check that sent opposing goalkeeper Doug Favell to the ice in a crumpled heap, the Blues exploded for three goals in less than five minutes and coasted to the 5-2 win over the Flyers. He does it every time, Arbor later marveled. I don't know what it is, but whenever Jimmy uh, is moved up front, things start to happen, and they are usually good things. Bowman, who turned over the coaching job to Arbor this season in order to concentrate on his duties as the general manager, had advocated occasionally shifting Roberts from the fence to the forward line. Bowman said he plays better when he's moved around, and he seems to thrive on the work. There isn't a better all-round player in the National Hockey League. And Roberts, who stands 5'10", weighs 187. He got plenty of work in this game. In addition to his stints up front on the forward line, he killed penalties and he took a regular turn on the St. Louis blue line. Roberts told Wally Cross of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that he really doesn't mind the extra work or getting moved around in the lineup. He says sometimes you wonder what position you're playing. It's easy to get confused and forget that you're supposed to be on right wing instead of on defense. Roberts made the statements while he was awaiting a tetanus shot. Now Jimmy wasn't uh, getting a tetanus shot because somebody uh, from the Flyers bit him, although that might happen in a few years in the future. It was actually because of an accident that happened at home earlier in the day when he cut a finger on a piece of rusty tin while he was working around his house. Talking about the three second period goals, Coach Arbor said that the funny thing about them was that essentially the same line scored all three markers, but each time there was a different right winger out there with that line. Arbor said, first I put Jimmy out there and we scored. Then Ecclestone went back out. We scored again. The third goal came shortly after we'd made a change on the fly, but Gary Sabrin, another right winger, hadn't been able to get off the ice, so he was the right winger that time. Three different right wingers, three goals. Can't argue with that production, can you, Al? 
Red Berenson figured in every St. Louis scoring play as the Bruins snapped their five-game winless streak and they moved to within eight points of the Chicago Blackhawks, leaders in the Western Division. St. Louis center Frank St. Marais says that's the last we'll see of them in reference to the Flyers. Oh, we'll play them again, but they aren't going to catch us in the standings now. Berenson, as we mentioned, figured in every St. Louis scoring play. He had a goal and four assists. He now has 30 points on the season. Three of the assists were collected at the expense of Dougie Favell, who was a victim of Berenson's record-tying six-goal performance in Philadelphia a couple of years ago. Dougie doesn't like to see Red Berenson anywhere near his net. Favell, by the way, suffered a knee injury to his right knee in that second period collision uh, with Roberts, and he was replaced by Bernie Perrant in the third period. Tim Ecclestone, who served four minor penalties in the game, that's unusual for the usually uh, clean-playing Ecclestone, opened the scoring in the uh, loosely played first period by shoveling Berenson's goal mount path over a sprawling Favelle, but the Flyers capitalized on a penalty to Sabrin to draw even only 17 seconds left in the opening frame. Then came, of course, the three-goal onslaught in the second period, and that basically spelled the end of the Flyers, and at the end of the period, Doug Favelle as well, and the final ends up being 5-2 for the St. Louis Blues over the Philadelphia Flyers. Now the Flyers, it must be admitted, were playing under some disadvantages. First of all, they were without Bobby Clark, who's their all-star center. He had remained home in Philadelphia with an infected boil on his left elbow. Uh, Somehow, I kind of like the term upper body injury a little better than that, don't you? Our, Our third highlight game of the week was an example, uh, a complete pure example of the troubled Detroit Red Wings franchise striking rock bottom, or at least what looked to us to be rock bottom at this point in the 1970-71 season. It really couldn't get any worse than this, could it? The Red Wings went into Maple Leaf Gardens and were decimated by the Leafs by the tune of 13 to nothing in one of the worst defeats for a Red Wings team in their history. You could tell that this game was not going to be a good game for the Red Wings fairly early on, and this play we're about to uh, give you the audio of is a perfect example of how things were going for this Detroit club. Webster, who got the draw, Henderson gives it back to Oman, shot it over to the wing. Knocked back to Pellick. Pellick, number four, back of the net, trying to pull away from under. That's right, Nick Libet 
got a two-minute penalty issued by referee Bill Friday for charging for body-checking his own player, Gary Unger of the Red Wings. Unger uh, looked at the time like he might have been seriously injured, but that was not the case. He bounced back up and entered the play, but in the meantime, Libet was given the minor for hitting his own player when he missed Mike Pellick with that check, and of course, in the ensuing power play, you know what happened. We playing every man up. Shot into the corner. Cleared by Harris down the ice. That is McKinney going back for it. We have 17.41 remaining in the first period. And there's no score between the Red Wings and the Leafs. Leafs with a man advantage. Keon, a pass over to Ellis. Ellis down the right wing. Flipped it through for Elman. Elman still has it. Back to McKinney. Over for Keon. Off the boards. There's the shot. Right on. Hit off the boards, but not out. McKinney, jump. The cut goes to Ellis, back to Keon. Over to McKinney. McKinney sits, cut them. Ellis shoots. That goal by Norm Allman was the first of 13 the Leafs would score in this game. And of course, they would go on to win 13 to nothing. Uh, we have a report on the, on the game we want to give to you. And it's from the Detroit perspective. This was the report filed in the Detroit Free Press on Sunday morning. And uh, there's no byline with this story. I, I would think it would be Jack Berry, but it's unclear whether he was at the game or not. So we'll just... Uh, give you the basis of the report as it uh, was read by Detroit hockey fans in their city. Scoring almost at will, the Toronto Maple Leafs stuck the Detroit Red Wings with the worst defeat in the 44-year history of the club by a score 13 to nothing. Yep, that's 13. Veterans Normie Ullman and Paul Henderson, both former Red Wings and rookies Daryl Settler and Billy McMillan, led the assault with two goals each as Toronto roasted the Wings' marshmallow defense. Detroit now has given up an incredible 26 goals in the last three games and 150 in just 36 NHL games this season, which is a rather fantastic 4.2 goals against per game average which of course is the worst record in the 14 team National Hockey League worse even than the expansionists Buffalo and Vancouver if you were wondering the, the Red Wings worst defeat until this game was an 11-2 shellacking by the New York Rangers way back on January 25th 1942. Jimmy Rutherford was in for the first three goals uh, on the game, and then Don McLeod, the Wings' other rookie goalie, went in and gave he gave up the final ten. No mercy was shown to Don. He had to stick in there the rest of the way. Toronto scored in every conceivable way. Four power play goals, one shorthanded goal, one while both teams were a man short, and the final one went into the net off Wings rookie defenseman Serge Lajeunesse escape. Beside the doubles scored by Ullman, Henderson, Sittler, and McMillan, the Leafs also got goals from Mike Pellick, Davey Keon, Gary Monahan, Brian Spencer, and Jim Harrison. While the Wings were giving up goals faster than snowfalls in a Buffalo blizzard, the Leafs were jealously protecting their fifth shutout, which was shared by both Jacques Plante and Bruce Gamble. 
Plant hardly saw the, the puck until Toronto had a 6 nothing lead late in the second period. And then he made big saves on Wayne Connolly and Bruce McGregor on a rare Detroit offensive foray. However, Jacques was injured on the Connolly shot, which took place at 15.44 of the middle frame. He completed the period, but then Gamble took over in the third, and he saved the whitewash with a fine save on Frank Mahavlich's short shot during a power play, and on Don Luce's straight-on attempt, which was Gamble's best stop of the night. It appeared as if the Red Wings rookie tandem uh, goaltenders, which has handled the net since Roy Edwards, suffered the uh, fractured skull on December 6th, would have been lucky to have stopped a basketball, let alone a buck. And they got no help at all from their defense, and that includes both the veteran and rookies who were all just plain awful. You have to remember, though, that Toronto is one of the hottest clubs in hockey right now. They've won 10 of their last 11 games and have moved, actually, into a playoff spot in the fourth place in the Eastern Division. This victory, which was the Leafs' third in as many meetings with Detroit this year, increased Toronto's hold on fourth place to nine points over Detroit with the season now closing in on the halfway point. Now at this point in the season, a nine-point lead for a playoff spot is by no means insurmountable. But this kind of beating could make it that way. The the Wings have now lost eight of their last nine games. And with the way things are swirling with the controversy around this hockey team, it, it seems obvious that something has to happen with this Detroit club to in an attempt to maybe turn the season around we told you about that first goal where where Oman scored on the Ellis uh rebound then it went like this number two was a Pelic slap shot after Rutherford lost his stick and he was crouching almost with his uh, butt entirely back in the net the third goal was Keon on a power play when Dale Rolfe just didn't bother to check him uh the penalty on the power play, by the way, was for having too many men on the ice, which would seem like yet another blunder by coach Ned Harkness. In the second period, the fourth goal was scored as Sittler got his first as uh, the line penned in Bruce McGregor's line and defenseman Rolf and Harris, they couldn't get the puck out of their zone. The fifth was Sittler on yet another power play after Jim Harrison won a face-off from veteran Detroit captain Alex Del Vecchio, and the sixth was Henderson as he just walked past uh, Lajeunesse after a fine pass from Normie Ullman. There were seven more goals to come after that. We're not going to outline all of them. You get the idea. This was just the worst defeat in the Red Wings history, something uh, that I don't think anybody could have anticipated coming uh, at this point in the season. Yes, the Red Wings have been a bad team, but this must be rock bottom. Uh, we would stay tuned because we thought that there would be news out of Detroit very shortly, possibly concerning the termination of uh, the college coach experiment in the name of Ned Harkness. Stay tuned. Let's see what happens. Now, aside from all the game action this week, there was a lot of hockey news off the ice and on the ice as well. Trade rumors really started to ramp up around the NHL this week. And we're going to try and bring you what was making headlines all over all over the league uh, 
regarding possible player movements. The week actually began with a player movement as the Flyers acquired right-winger Cliff Schmatz from the Buffalo Sabres when they claimed him off of waivers. Reports in Philadelphia on Tuesday indicated that although Schmatz was uh, a waiver pickup, General Manager Keith Allen was engaged with Sabres GM Punch Imlac in trade talks involving other players, although none of these reports st- uh Uh, actually said who these players might be. At the same time, there was a lot of talk in Vancouver about the Canucks making moves to replace injured captain Orland Curtinback. Bob Dunn of the Vancouver province reported that general manager Bud Poyle made a trip to Phoenix of the Western Hockey League to look at farmhands Howie Young and Andre Hines, and he was going to make a side trip to Los Angeles to talk over a deal with the Kings GM Larry Regan. Uh, Such a deal there, it was speculated, might send goalie George Gardner from the Canucks to the Kings. Dunn also suggested that Howie Young and Andre Hines, the two being looked at by Bud Poyle, could find themselves in the Vancouver lineup before the end of the week. The province was also reporting that Poyle had had talks with both the Rangers and the Blues and the Maple Leafs and Flyers. The Vancouver-Toronto discussions, of course, were centered on center Mike Walton of the Leafs, but Poyle said those talks didn't last very long. He inquired the Leafs GM Jim Gregory about what it would take to get Walton and if he would even trade him. Gregory told him the Leafs were quite willing to swap away Walton. In fact, they were very likely to deal the uh, troubled center but Gregory said it would not be to a divisional rival like the Canucks with whom they would be fighting for the last playoff spot so much for that idea for improving Vancouver's offense at center Poyle did say that a deal with the New York Rangers was on the table and all he had to do was advise Rangers GM Emil Francis that he was in agreement and the trade would be consummated. But Bud says he nixed that particular exchange, didn't fit his liking, but that talks were definitely not dead, and he would be speaking once again with Francis this week in order to try and make something happen to improve his slumping team. Poyle did finally admit that he is considering trading the team's second-round amateur draft pick for some immediate help, something he was loath to discuss up to this point in time. Uh, Bud's problem is the stronger teams want nothing to do with anything less than Vancouver's first rounder. Now with all these rumors that were going around, here's something that really amazed me back then and sticks with me today about what was going on here in 1970. It was amazing how many sports writers were reporting that National Hockey League general managers were all requesting that any deal with Vancouver must include Dale Talon. Now now here's uh, the interesting part. Bud Poyle himself was quoted in several stories as saying that he was being frustrated because teams were only interested in Talon in any deal and he wasn't going to trade Dale Talon. Now that means that Bud Poyle himself is unaware that he can't trade Dale Talon. We know that wouldn't be true. The NHL, if you remember, back last June, when the Sabres and the Canucks were engaged in the amateur draft, 
instituted a regulation that prohibits either of those first-year expansion teams from trading their first picks, Gilbert Perot and Dale Talon, to any other National Hockey League club for at least three years. Now, I knew about that. It was well publicized. I think most hockey fans, certainly most Sabres fans, knew about it. It's uh, just incredible that the Canucks general manager doesn't know he can't trade Dale Talon. And it's even more incredible that other National Hockey League general managers are unaware of this regulation and they're asking for Dale Talon and trades from the Canucks. Really? I think I think it's more unlikely that the reporters who put these quotes out there were more likely taking liberties with the truth in which they themselves failed to be cognizant of that National Hockey League regulation. I'm not going to embarrass these guys by naming any of these reporters. You can probably guess if you were around at that time who these reporters might be. On Thursday, news came down from the NHL that President Clarence Campbell was getting involved in the Mike Walton situation. Campbell is attempting to encourage a trade between any National Hockey League team and the Toronto Maple Leafs to help solve Mike Walton's problems, which include depression and just a general desire uh, to not play in Toronto. You may remember that Walton is undergoing psychiatric treatment at this time. Uh, He was suspended by Toronto on December 11th when he failed to appear for a practice. He had been ill for some time, but the least medical reports indicated that he could at least practice. Well, that was uh, went by the wayside when Campbell ordered that Walton be reinstated to the team after receiving a report from an independent medical arbitrator, a psychiatrist. So the 25-year-old center is receiving his regular salary and he's not playing. Campbell said that any opportunity I have certainly will do what I can to stimulate a situation and a solution to the problem with a trade or a sale to another National Hockey league team. Campbell said he had talked with several clubs about this uh, problem, but they had not been really interested in making any trade for Walton, primarily because they don't have anyone to trade for him and they don't want to give anything away in the form of actual bodies for a player unable to play. Campbell then went on to say, he actually said this, that the possibility of the trade is complicated by the Leafs' reluctance to, quote, become a sucker by trading Walton for a borderline player and then seeing the center develop into an NHL star, which everyone thinks he has the potential to be. But of course, other teams are reluctant to offer much for Walton because of his questionable health. Campbell went on to say that it was his understanding that there were at least 13 teams interested in Walton, of the 14 teams in the NHL, and that there were no offers on the table for him. That's his understanding, that the Leafs had nothing to even consider to make a trade right now. I think Campbell was saying that because he wanted to placate uh, Walton's agent, Al Eagleson, who said that the Leafs had offers for Walton and could make a deal right now if they want to. Campbell said, I would certainly love to see Walton playing for California or Pittsburgh or Los Angeles, but what are you going to get in exchange if you're Toronto? 
As the year 1971 dawned, Jack Berry of the Detroit Free Press reported that the Leafs had offered Walton to the Red Wings in an even-up swap for Gary Unger, who now had fallen into great disfavor with the Red Wings' management. Ned Harkness said that uh, Unger's play is substandard and that he has to pull up his socks or he's out of there, but the Red Wings are not willing to send him to Toronto for Mike Walton. On Sunday, January 4th, the Boston Globe reported that a Toronto-Boston trade was, according to the headlines on a six-column story, imminent. Now, we've heard this one before. They reported the same thing back fall. It was Tom Fitzgerald, the uh, Globe hockey writer, who, by the way, is one of the really good ones in the hockey reporting business. He reported that a deal that had been on the back burner since the fall, when uh, this was originally reported, would likely be wrapped up this week. Fitzgerald reported that GM Milt Schmidt of the Bruins had been following the Leafs around again, and when questioned by Fitzgerald, he admitted he was right then on his way to Toronto, but he said with a laugh, I'm not going to tell you my business, and that's fair enough on Milt's part. But here's what's got the uh, Boston writers uh, all up in arms that there might be a trade going uh, it was a conversation with Boston players on the flight from Buffalo to Philadelphia. Uh, each of the players uh, said, don't quote me, but several felt that uh, some kind of business involving trades would be completed within a few days by the Bruins. There was no clear idea what players would be involved in such a deal when the idea was first broached late in uh, October, about three-quarters of the men on the Boston team were mentioned in one speculative story. Uh, It's not even certain that uh, any maneuver would be restricted between the Maple Leafs and the Bruins. There was a possibility, a very strong possibility, according to the Globe, that there would be a three-way affair possibly involving the Buffalo Sabres. Punch Imlach, the Buffalo general manager, obviously wouldn't express any views uh, when Fitzgerald questioned him, but Buffalo participation could mean Boston's acquisition of another priority pick in the June draft. That's right, the Bruins are after more first-round picks, but Tom, I'll tell you this, Punch Imlach will not be trading any of the Sabres' first-round picks for a has-been or maybe never will be from the Bruins. The Bruins already have the first choice of the LA Kings in their pocket, and with Buffalo a shoe-in to finish last in the East, this would be a very nice pick for the Bruins to pick up. But I'll tell you, Tom, it ain't going to happen. Smart trade talk, this time from Pat Curran of the Montreal Gazette, who spoke with GM Sammy Pollock of the Canadians and asked him if the Habs were about to be involved in all this uh, talk of trades around the NHL. Sam responded, the Canadians are getting Jacques LaPerriere back from injury, and that's just as good as making a trade for a regular player, and that at the moment, there is nothing cooking with the Habs in that regard. However... Assistant General Manager Ron Curran was spotted in New York and he did not deny that the Habs might be looking at a piece from the Rangers that might move them closer to New York or the Bruins in the NHL standings. As the week drew to a close, the Associated Press reported that General Manager Keith Allen of the Flyers was also cooking up something with the Rangers. The Flyers' main currency in any transactions that they might make is their wealth of goalkeepers, as they have both Doug Favell and Bernie Perrant 
uh, both of them capable of being a number one goalkeeper in the National Hockey League. The Rangers don't have any need for what the Flyers have to sell as Jill Villemier and Ed Jockman are both playing all-star hockey this year. But don't discount the fact that Allen and uh, Francis are old buddies from way back and it is entirely possible that these two guys could cook up some kind of a deal in the near future. Well, that's all the uh, trade speculation this week. As we said, lots going on. And now we have a little bit of other NHL news to talk about as well. And we have some Junior A news to talk about as well. Uh, this involves a young defenseman by the name of Steve Durbano of the Toronto Marlboros. Well, you've uh, heard reports we put out lately of Durbano's antics. He is a an erratic character to say the least. Well, he was put on something like double secret probation uh, this week by Ontario Hockey Association President Tubby Schmaltz. Uh, Durbano is a defenseman, as we mentioned before, for the Toronto Marlboros. But uh, he hurt a couple players. They thought he broke Craig Ramsey's ankle in a game against Peterborough. And he was suspended indefinitely by Schmaltz for all, all this... Uh, violent activity. Schmaltz lifted the indefinite suspension this week. He withdrew it in favor of a four-game probationary period. Yeah, that'll teach him. A little bit more news from the OHA Junior A League. Uh, Steve Durbano's father is a fellow by the name of Nick Durbano who happens to own the Hamilton Red Wings Junior A team, one of the more storied Junior A franchises as well. Well, Nick Durbano was proving to be just as an erratic an owner as his son is a player. The Red Wings announced the appointment this week of their fourth coach of this season. He's former NHL star Billy Harris, who played for the Leafs, Red Wings, Penguins, and Seals in the NHL, and he agreed to take over the struggling Junior A team. Now, Durbano has been running the club behind the bench, as well as serving as general manager. He's going to remain as general manager of the team, although it was indicated that Harris will have a, a considerable amount of input into player decisions, as well as running the bench. Goalie Roger Crozier of the Buffalo Sabres reports he's feeling much better after being admitted to a Buffalo hospital with pancreatitis last week. Roger noted that his last serious attack over a year ago while playing for the Red Wings kept him off the ice for over two weeks, but this time he figures he can get back to playing much sooner than that, and Roger, in fact, was discharged from a hospital on New Year's Eve and was hoping to be back in the Buffalo Nets before the week was over. Gary Unger, as we mentioned earlier, is in hot water with the Red Wings management over an interview with the Detroit Free Press. A management uh, was upset on three fronts with the uh, Unger interview. Number one, uh, in the uh, quiz by Jack Barry of the Free Press, Unger was critical of coach Ned Harkness and general manager Sid Abel. And uh, he also made some uh, intermission interviews on Detroit Channel 50 over the 5-2 loss to Buffalo. And that was not going over well uh, with Harkness and Abel either. In fact, Gary was called on the carpet to explain his candid remarks on Harkness's coaching methods and the trades of Peter Stemkowski and the release of Bob Bond and the state of the club 
in general. We are going to do a reenactment of, of this interview. The interview appeared in print. There is no audio of it that we've been able to find, but we have some folks who might take on the roles of Gary Unger and uh, Jack Berry, and we'll tell you exactly how that interview went. There are a couple of other interviews upcoming that are going to uh, kind of further this controversy. Those interviews are going to be with Sid Abel and Ned Harkness. Stay tuned for that. Those will be features in our Patreon subscribers' subscriptions. They'll be able to hear those when we uh, put them together uh, in the upcoming weeks. Minnesota North Stars uh, made a player move. They've called up the American Hockey League's leading scorer, Norm Bowden, from the Cleveland Barons. He's going to replace uh, two players who were injured, Buster Harvey and J.P. Parise, who's out with what looks to be a troubling back injury. Another injury note, the Flyers lost right winger Gary Dornhofer for at least three weeks due to a knee operation. He's had knee trouble since last season, and this is his second surgery since last spring. No news this week on a new owner for the Pittsburgh Penguins who continue to be operated by the National Hockey League, although Executive Vice President Jack Riley and General Manager Coach Red Kelly continue to deduct to conduct the play-by-play operations of the club. Clarence Campbell called the Pittsburgh situation the league's biggest priority as we move into 1971. Here's an interesting statistic from the NHL this week. Not the kind of stats that were normally put out by the league up until 1970. Any guesses as to which NHL goalie faces the most shots per game? Well, it's Joe Daly of the Buffalo Sabres who stands up to a whopping average of 43.5 drives in every 60 minutes of NHL time he puts in. And Joe does this all without a mask. Uh, here's, a, a, I guess, a feel-good story. You feel good if he's not doing this too soon. But Roy Edwards, who, as we mentioned, had been out with a fractured skull, made a surprise return to the Detroit goal on Sunday night, the evening after the Red Wings were bombed by the Maple Leafs 13 to nothing. Roy told reporters that after the Saturday debacle in Toronto, he felt so sorry for rookies Don McLeod and Jim Rutherford, who absorbed the beating at the hands of the Maple Leafs, that he called team doctors himself and begged permission to play Sunday night against the California Seals. Well, the Red Wing doctors relented, and Roy told coach Ned Harkness he was ready to go, complete with a brand new helmet added to his Lefty Wilson model face mask. It was really quite a weird-looking thing, but I managed to acquire a, a helmet like that as well, and I constructed that on the pretzel mask that I was playing with in those days, and actually it did afford quite a bit more protection. You know what happened when Roy got back in the net after that 13 to nothing loss by the Red Wings? The team rebounded, and they beat the Seals... 3-2, and Roy Edwards was one of the game's three stars. And so we've come to the end of another episode, everyone. And what did we learn in this very eventful week in the NHL? Well, we got some hopeful news on Sabres goalie Roger Crozier. And in fact, Roger got out of the hospital and would soon return to the Buffalo Sabres lineup. 
Gary Unger's in hot water with the Detroit Red Wings management again, and it's only a matter of time till something blows up there as the Red Wings hit rock bottom in a 13-0 loss to the Maple Leafs. And there are a ton of trade rumors flying around the NHL right now, and we had to talk about all the main ones. If you think this week was busy, wait till you hear what we have for you next week. Uh, some of the stories we'll be working on, well, after that awful loss to Toronto, Red Wings general manager Sid Abel asked for a summit meeting with Detroit Red Wings owner Bruce Norris over the state of the team. The results of that meeting pretty well shocked everyone in the hockey world. NHL President Clarence Campbell will crack down on NHL brawlers next week issuing a bevy of fines and we'll tell you all about the guilty parties who lost some money. And the mid-season all-star teams will be announced next week and we will have all the names although we have to tell you there won't be too many surprises. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. I can't thank Andy enough for all the hard work he puts into this thing. Uh, he's a true professional, uh, had a great radio career, and is really doing a nice job with the podcast that he's involved in. Andy now is in the business of producing podcasts professionally. If you're lo- thinking of uh, putting something together, get a hold of me. I'll put you in contact with Andy, and he will uh, give you a first-rate production. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction music, and if you ever get a chance to see them perform live, don't miss it. Other musical pieces in the podcast and the sound effects are uh, constructed by Andy Cole. Our research comes from files for the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course the many fine publications found at newspapers.com you can find us every day on twitter at at hockey 50 years and we give you the hockey news of the day uh, on twitter with tidbits in 256 characters Uh, we're on facebook under the 50 years ago on hockey banner we have a wordpress site hockey 50 years ago.com and of course anywhere you can download podcast apps you'll find this one we thank everyone who tunes into our show. It's going to be uh, an exciting finish to the 1970-71 season as we head into the second half, and we hope that you'll be with us all the way. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the ice breaks-